Good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest, Harvest Perry Sound. If you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew 18. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, one of the ushers will pass out a Bible to you. Um, and if you do not own a Bible, please take that Bible home. Um, that's our gift to you so that you can have a copy of God's Word and begin to get into God's Word um, uh, in your in-between church times in your own place in your home. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going I'm to read through these verses with us. I'm going to make a couple comments because even as I read them, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of things firing in hearts as we read through these verses. Um, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into it today. And so, so what Kai said today is, is true. This is, a, this is an in-house chat. This is a family chat. Uh, if you are not a believer in Christ, not a Christ follower, you're welcome here. Please tune in. Do not tune out because you're going to hear some things um, that are very important for you to hear as far as your pursuit of Christ, who he is, uh, and if you believe in him and want to submit your heart to him or not. But, but for us as family, brothers and sisters, we need to set under God's word today. So let me read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. It says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to him, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you, for them, by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So if you're not a believer, you're about to get a peek into what the body of Christ is called to be. So if you're kind of kicking the tires on what it means to be a Christian, you get to interview us right now. <laughs> so that's why I said don't tune out because you're gonna get, to get a peek into what it means to be in the covenant community. We live in a culture of tolerance and a, cultural, a culture of political correctness where I read these verses and I know for a fact that people are recalling on things they've either experienced in churches that had a heavy-handed spiritual abuse about them or um, from things that they've seen or experienced personally, maybe having been at the receiving end of a judgmental attitude. These verses can seem harsh or judgmental, but in the full context, what you're going to see is they're incredibly loving and redemptive and needed by the covenant community. But let me pray for us. Father, come to you right now and ask Holy Spirit that you would move in this time. Lord, this is your word. Use your word to bring our hearts under glad submission of what you say to be true. Lord, we confess right now that we do not see the whole picture. We confess that we see dimly. We confess that, that we walk in a pride that assumes it sees more than it does, but our confession now is, Lord, that we believe that you see purely and truly, and your word articulates what's best for us as Christ followers. So we bring ourselves right now, even if it's difficult, Lord, 
Even if it's maybe undesired, we bring our hearts before you, O God, through your word that you administer in power. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would um, send anything away that's not of you, that we would set in peace and respond to you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, I pray that as we, as we articulate what it means to be a Christ follower, that your words would shine true in our hearts and bring about life and healing and grace and hope in the individual hearts represented here, but as a corporate community um, that, that seek to, to be faithful with what you've called us to steward in this church. We bless you and we thank you that you, you have not left us, you have not forsaken us. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. All right, we need some context to understand what Matthew, uh, what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is talking about. Uh, if you've been in church any amount of time, then you might have heard these few verses as described as the church discipline verses. And so where the emphasis of us even preaching this comes months and months and months ago, maybe even a year ago, conversations with, with pastors, with elders praying through, where does the Lord want to grow us as a covenant community? And so as a, as a father, I'm, I'm only 38, I'm, we're celebrating our 12-year anniversary this, this coming week. And so I still feel young in a, in a lot of ways. Before I moved to Canada, this right side of my goatee wasn't gray. Now, now it's matching the left side. So I don't know what that means, but I still feel young as a young father, uh, a young husband, uh, a young man. But, but in so many ways... Um, as I read verses like this that God gives us in his word, whether that be the Old Testament, whether that be in the Gospels, which is where we're reading here, or even in the epistles where Paul and Peter and other apostles give clear direction to the church, there's some important things for us to wrestle with. So go to verse one. He's, Jesus is gonna give us some incredibly helpful context. Matthew 18, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what sparks this dialogue that Jesus is gonna bring to them is a question that the disciples ask. And the question is this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus takes this question. It's kind of like a like if you ever played slow pitch softball, they just kind of lob this one up to Jesus and Jesus is about to take a home run swing at it. I mean, it's like they just toss it up to him and it reveals a couple things. Uh, it reveals that the disciples literally see Christ as the Messiah. In other words, this guy, Jesus, has done these miracles He's performed these massive works. We've heard what he said the kingdom is, and we're buying in. Because they're asking him, what's the kingdom of heaven? They're buying into what Jesus is selling. So that's a good thing. But they ask one of the most boneheaded questions you could ask. After having seen Jesus do all these miracles and heard him preach and proclaim, their question reveals that they have no idea what the kingdom of heaven is. And Jesus takes this opportunity. He grabs a child, draws this child into the midst of them, and then he begins to speak. And, and here's the picture. Where, where oftentimes Jesus is preaching to a massive crowd and he's proclaiming the gospel to a massive crowd, when he draws this kid into the midst of them, he's calling in the Christ followers. That's why we said what we said on the front end. This is a message for the Christ follower. Don't tune out if you're not, but this is Jesus drawing him and say, I need you to listen to something. 
You see it in verse two. He says, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen, that the emphasis on this phrase is significant. He's saying, listen, heed this carefully. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So what Jesus is gonna say is the kingdom of heaven is to become childlike. So what does it mean to be childlike? What are the characteristics of being childlike? I got four kids and they're all pretty childish. (laughs) He's not talking about childishness. What does it mean to be childlike? But at the same time, I would see um, evidences in my kids that as I read through the gospel, their, their, their picture to me at, between um, son and father and daughter and father, their evidences reveal characteristics that Christ is calling me to. So what are those characteristics? To be childlike is to be helpless and weak. In other words, we, a child looks outside of itself for provision and care. Um, my boys are starting to do things around the house um, that, that earns them a bit of money here and there. Um, and so most of the time when I'm doing stuff around the house, I'm like, hey guys, chip in, let's get this figured out together. But what, what I'm trying to do is to teach them responsibility at the same time. So I will give them tasks and give them things to do around the house. And if they do it, then I'll, I'll throw them a toonie or a loonie, right? And that's huge for them and their economy. I mean, they get a toonie is a big deal. We don't have toonies in the States. And so a toonie is a big deal to me. That does a lot of laundry in college, right? So, so to give them these assignments, to give them things to do, it's a big deal. But, but other than that, all of their provision comes from outside of themselves. You know, they don't pay a single bill. <laughs> In fact, the boys are eating more as they get older, and I'm having to slow them down. They're eating us out of house and home. It's like, you don't bring anything to the table when it comes to provision. Their need for provision and care is fully outside of themselves. But here's the beautiful thing. They know it and accept it. They recognize it. They recognize it and gladly come under the provisions that me and their mother afford to them. They're grateful for it. They say thank you for it. They're appreciative of it. They're they're, they're not shamed by it. There's a recognized need outside of self. It's the difference between dependence and independence. The independent heart says, I've got this. I don't need any help. I'll figure it out myself. Can I just tell you that that is not God's design on how the heart's created? We've talked about this before. The way that God creates a human heart in Genesis 1 and 2 is a dependent heart. If the heart was created independent, why would in Genesis 1 and 2, God have needed to give them counsel and direction? If they were independent, they wouldn't have needed the direction, care, help, guidance, provision from God We are created as dependent. And to be childlike is to recognize need outside of self. A second characteristic, teachable. It's a need need for truth outside of self. It's a need for direction outside of self. A third one, vulnerable. In other words, they haven't learned the game of pretending and manipulating. Like the older you get, the more cynical and jaded you become. Right, this is, this is what I deal with in counseling consistently. Um, I'll kind of throw a question out there. So how are we doing? kind of a break the ice question. And it's like, we're doing great. I'm like, okay, there's a veneer that we gotta get through. Like we've, we've learned as adults the way to fake it till you make it. It's the art of pretending and manipulating and kids, children don't walk in this near as consistently 
Another characteristic, um, children are overlooked and marginalized. In other words, they don't vote. <laughs> um, they, they, they don't have a say-so on the town council. Um, there's no children represented on parliament. See, I'm, I'm culturally savvy, right? There's no children rep- represented on parliament. There's no children in the Senate. And especially in Jesus' time, where, where I think kids have more rights today than they've ever had, in Jesus' time, what he's speaking to, they had absolutely no rights. They were considered second-class citizens, and until they can contribute to society, we see them as less than. That was the culture in Jesus' time. Everything a child has is given to them. What's there to boast about? What's there to beat their chest about? So what Jesus is saying is to trust him totally, to trust Christ totally, to expect everything from him and nothing from self. This is what it means to be childlike. It's humble in spirit. Let's keep going. Verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So, so this is kind of the first charge to the church. Um, a pastor friend of mine would say it this way. Um, the church that I served in back in Texas, this was kind of the mantra that we had for years, that the church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. In other words, you shouldn't have to airbrush yourself outside the door to walk into these doors. That those who come broken, those who come hurting, those who come lame, those who come struggling should be welcomed in this place. The church I grew up in, You had to put the smile on and get the airbrush going so that you could walk in the doors and act like you've arrived. Shekinah glory, I'm going to see Jesus tomorrow because I'm doing that well, but you're rotting inside. That is not the body of Christ. That is not the call of the church. So what Jesus is saying here is, whoever receives one such child in my name, the lowly, the hurting, those who recognize their need outside of themselves, the humbled, here's the caution And we're about to see three threats that take the heart away from this humble, childlike disposition, which is what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So there's three threats that Jesus is speaking to. There's the threat of others. And this is found in verse six when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. He talks about the millstone. So this millstone, the picture of this millstone here is a giant stone that would be used in and around the farm. And it could only be toted by a donkey. So a massive rope would be tied to this millstone. And then um, a donkey or two donkeys would pull this millstone to do work around the farm. In other words, it couldn't be moved by human strength. It needed horsepower to move this massive stone. He's saying, to to those who would lead these little ones away from the pure gospel message, woe to you. And that millstone that would drag them to the bottom of the ocean, it's an unescapable damnation coming for those. So keep in mind who he's speaking to again. 
those who call themselves Christ followers. There are those in the epistles, in Paul's letters, where uh, Paul describes false apostles as those who would peddle the gospel. They would take Christ and what he says and they would bend it and distort it to make their own name great and use it for selfish gain. And do you know that people follow that? That the little ones, humble in spirit, needy outside of themselves, are swayed by that message and drawn into a false gospel. And Jesus says, woe to you that we stick to the message of Christ and Christ crucified. If you ever go to a church and they preach a different gospel, run, run. We will be held account for the message that we preach to a great standard, the scriptures say. It's why I could always nearly vomit before I have to get up and preach because I know one day I'm gonna be held accountable for it and I could potentially preach a different gospel that leads these little ones away from Christ. Do you hear the gravity in that church? What message do you proclaim in your life? What gospel do you proclaim in your life? It's this millstone that's heavy. So that's the first threat. The second threat, it could easily come under the first threat, but there's a nice overlap that we need to see. It's verse seven. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. He's talking about a lot of things, but Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and the world is full of darkness as a result. Scripture describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air. He takes full advantage of the brokenness and sin that's been introduced into this very world that we live in. And those temptations come all the time. They come when we wake up in the morning. They come when we go to bed at night. They are riddled throughout our day. That's the second threat. And then here, I would say, is maybe the biggest threat. Jesus uh, gives us two verses dedicated to it. It's the threat of self, verses eight and nine. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hells of fire. So this isn't literal, guys. I mean, we'd be a bunch of toothless, eyeless, handless, legless fools in here this morning. Some of you would be having to explain why you're missing some body parts. You're like, whoa, how are you missing that body part, dude? How'd that body part cause you to sin? Like, it is not literal. It's talking about radical amputation. That the follower of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, childlike faith, humble Christ dependency, deals with sin radically. So here's another sobering question for us, brothers and sisters. Do you have sin in your life that's lingered for so long that you refuse to cut your hand off? That is non-childlikeness. And the longer that goes, the more seared your conscience becomes. The longer you enable that sin to fester, the longer you embrace that sin, your heart becomes less and less childlike, less and less dependent upon Christ, less and less humble. So there's some awkward tension that Jesus is creating already in the text because he's speaking to his that call himself Christ followers. Yet he's pointing out very specific things that Christ followers could come into that might reveal they're actually not Christ followers to begin with. These are things that we have to wrestle with, brothers and sisters. 
And then here's a beautiful picture of the pursuit of the Father. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So some have used these two verses to, to notate that every believer in Christ has guardian angels. Um, I don't know that that's true because I don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. What I think this means is it's speaking to other parts in the New Testament where it talks about God having angels that are ministering spirits. And here's the picture of that. These ministering spirits, it shows that the little ones really matter to God. So God's, God's not unaware of what's going on in my life. But he's so thorough in what's going on in my life. There are ministering spirits set to minister and care for me and report back to God as to what's going on with me. That's some thorough care. So if you've ever felt alone as a Christ follower, do you see the loving provision here? God's not unaware of what's going on in your life. Oh, and by the way, ministering spirits to bless you and encourage you in ways you can't even see. And then verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the pursuing Father. There's, if, if you're aware of the Gospels, there's another parable very similar to this. It's found in Luke 15. In Luke 15, there's three parables that Jesus tells back to back. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. These two parables, Matthew 18 and Luke 15, are very similar, but there's some key differences that we need to see to understand this great pursuit on behalf of the Father. First in Luke 15, it's talking about a lost sheep. It's lost. It's not wandering. It's a lost sheep. It's not in the fold, and it represents a sinner, sinner outside the community of faith. So in Luke 15, when that sheep is found, it's salvation. They, they were lost, and now they were found. In fact, in Luke 15, it's going to say that the angels go bananas over that one sinner that's saved. Y'all following with me? Bananas? Okay. They go crazy. Crazy. Go crazy for that one sinner that is saved. This is not what that's talking about here. The sheep in this parable is the wandering sheep. Matthew 18, it's the wandering sheep who has drifted away into sin. The three threats that we talked about, the threat of others, the threat of, create, the, the, the threat of the world, the threat of self, these things have settled into the heart of this sheep and it's wandered away from the fold. Where the picture is similar in Luke 15 and Matthew 18, when, when God the Father, who's the central figure in both of those parables, leaves the 99, he's not leaving them um, in, in a dangerous position. He's leaving them in a good position to go find the one. One to save and draw into the fold for salvation. The other one to seek out because he's wandered away from the fold because sin has entered the heart of this one and is hardened and calloused and become less and less childlike, less and less Christ-dependent, less and less humble, and the Father pursues that one to draw them back into the fold. In both parables, the Father's the great initiator. 
So brother, sister, if you're in this room and you've wandered from the fold, right now the Father's coming after you. Come home. If you've never known the love of the Father, if you're checking this Jesus thing out, you're the one on the outside, Jesus is calling your name into life. Come home. Come home. That the Father wills that those who wander because of sins, the sins of self, the sins of the world, the sins of others who would lead us away from the gospel. The Father wills that those who wander from the community of faith not be abandoned, but every effort be made to restore in love. And what's troubling about verses 10 through 14 is even though the Father, and Jesus leaves it vague again, even though the Father pursues the wandering, it doesn't guarantee a result that the wanderer will come back into the fold. He leaves it vague on purpose. Just because the father goes after seek the wandering doesn't guarantee that it comes back into the fold. That when judgment day comes, there will be those that never came back into the fold because they were never childlike to begin with. They never had salvation to begin with. They wandered away from the things of Jesus. You see this in Judas. If you study the gospels and see Judas's ministry throughout Christ's ministry, Judas was around the teachings of Christ, but it talks about how he, he saw Christ as a great prophet to self, but he was never truly submitted to Christ. He was never childlike. He was never humble. Christ was selfish gain for Judas. Christ, um, for Christ, Judas, he, it, was a, it was a leg up on the org chart, so to speak. It was a notch in his belt. It gained him some favor. He was the treasurer after all. So that Christ's popularity and notoriety, Judas benefited from it, but he was never childlike or humble. He leaves it vague on purpose. So with this context, so what's the context? Kingdom of heaven, childlike. What does it mean to be childlike? Dependent outside of self, on Christ, which leads to humility, utter Christ dependency, lowly, weak, recognized need for truth and help outside of self. This is what it means to be a Christ follower in the kingdom. That's our context for verse 15. Now let's pick it up. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if your brother sins, this sin, this picture for sin isn't necessarily offense against two believers. It could be, but it's, it's a sin in general. If your brother sins, go to him in private. In other words, if you see something glaring in a brother or sister, don't go talk to everyone except them. Go to them. Plead with them. Pray for them and engage accordingly privately. And if they listen, you've won a brother back. Praise the Lord that they respond to truth. Their heart that could have become calloused and hard is softened and brought back into that childlike state, which brings them into the presence of Christ, not propel them away from the presence of Christ. So God, the father, he models this for us and that he pursues the lost sheep. He pursues the wandering sheep. So with, with God the Father modeling to us what it means to pursue, how much more the body of Christ? How much more, brothers and sisters? Woe to us if we see a brother or sister struggling and we turn her back at the risk of being seen as judgmental. No. 
If you were off on the right, headed towards a cliff, would you not want someone to pursue you? You don't know the cliff is coming. But God, God pursues. God the Father pursues. How much more us brothers and sisters? And, and the, the, the aroma in verses 15 through 20, there is no vengeance at all. Because some of you right now, and I'm gonna give you a Texas analogy, but we live in Muskoka, you got rifles too. You're gonna hear what I'm saying and you're gonna unload and you're gonna start putting bullets in your rifle to take shots at people. The aroma in this is unbelievable compassion. Unbelievable grace and concern for the wayward brother or sister. There is no vengeance or judgment in the tone at all. You hear me? This is not a text for you to load your gun. In fact, if you're loading your gun right now, keep your mouth quiet. Because those are the types of errors that bring this text a judgmental tone. This is full of life. Everyone in this room has blind spots, amen? I think of the countless times in my life when God sent a brother or sister to me to speak life into me, when I was headed this way, and when they spoke faithfully life, I went back towards Christ. I do not know where I would be if they had not, because there are no guarantees, which is why Jesus keeps it vague in 10 through 14. There are no guarantees. This matter is between God and the person. The pursuing brother or sister understands that their heart is at odds with God. And even if that sin is against me, it reveals more about their heart with the Lord, the vertical, than anything. And out of concern for their heart with the Lord, how can I not pursue? Private sins are well represented in each of our lives. Things like heart attitudes, character defects, secret sins. All of these things eventually begin to affect Horizontal relationships. So um, I had the chance to go speak at a conference back in Texas where I lived several weeks ago. And I got to see a lot of old friends. And when you haven't seen some of your old friends for a while, maybe you've kept up through text here and there, um, you, you, you're catching up on a lot of things. And, and there was one guy in particular that I was catching up with where we left things three years ago before we moved up here. And our conversation as of a couple weeks were very different. And as I left that meeting with him, I began to be greatly concerned for my brother because I heard all kinds of inconsistencies that were different than what I remembered two years ago. So over the last several weeks, the Lord has agonized my heart for this brother because there's a stronghold in his life that is so severe that it's beginning to affect his horizontal relationships. So what if one of his sins comes out sideways towards me? If I'm Christ-like and humble, my heart is burdened for him and his heart with the Lord. If I'm not Christ-like and humble and childlike, I will see his offense of me as a chance for me to judgmentally heap condemnation on him. That is not the heart of Christ that what it reveals about him is his heart is broken with the Lord. I've got to pursue him with loving truth and try to walk with him back towards Christ. I'm Ken Sandy. I highly recommend his book, The Peacemaker. 
Um, He's one of the um, foremost thinkers and biblical theologians on biblical reconciliation, biblical peacemaking. There's several things you're gonna see behind me. Um, These are some of his principles that we're gonna walk through this week and next week as we talk about pursuing one another but also pursuing forgiveness. He, He calls these the four G's of peacemaking. The first is glorify God. That's the vertical That instead of focusing on our own desires or dwelling on what others may do, we will rejoice in the Lord and bring him praise by depending on his forgiveness, wisdom, power, and love as we seek to faithfully obey his commands and maintain a loving, merciful, and forgiving attitude. Just a posture of peace. Our hearts are so in tune with the Lord in that childlike place of humble dependency upon him. We see things going on around us in the covenant community with great concern, but ultimately it's about glorifying God. Second, and this is the big one. This is for us right here. We're really wanting this one to fall on us hard. Get the log out of your own eye. This is Matthew 7, 3 through 5 that talks about this. Instead of blaming others for conflict or resisting correction, we will trust God's mercy to take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins to those we have wronged, asking God to help us change any attitudes and habits that lead to conflict. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. So the the biblical call is that you walk with Christ in such a way that the Spirit's consistently convicting you of sin, both through his word, other people, the Spirit, brings about conviction so that those logs can be yanked out of our face. And in our culture of non-confrontation, the gospel actually calls us as radical amputations happening in our life, we press into others for the little splinter in their eye. So actually following Christ makes you more concerned about your brother. You see um, Cain and Abel, we named our son Abel, and he was brief, short-lived in scriptures um, because Cain took him out, Cain killed him. And God comes to Cain, and he, he says to Cain, where is your brother? And he's, te- he's testing him, because God knows that he's already done away with him. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. As a Christ follower, for those who are childlike in faith, seeking to be Christ-dependent, more childlike, that as God's dealing with logs in our own face, we become more and more concerned with our brother. Not for the sake of gossip, not for the sake of holding it over them, not for the sake of leverage so that we can use it against him. Out of great concern for their heart with the Lord, we press into these things. And then gently restore, number three, the third G. Instead of pretending that conflict doesn't exist or talking about others behind their backs, we will overlook minor offenses or we will talk personally and graciously with those whose offenses seem too serious to overlook. So the picture here, we'll talk more about this next week, but the picture here is that it's it's as you confront your brother or sister and they listen and you've won a brother back, there might be some collateral damage there that needs care and recovery over time. This is where we spend a lot of effort and time in biblical soul care. Where, where people are trying to walk out of darkness, walk out of a struggle, walk out of sin, and we gently restore them in that place through truth, in love, with compassion, through the gospel, so that we might be childlike together. 
You know what's so great about pursuing another brother or sister? If you do it in a childlike attitude with great humility, you know you've been pursued sometime or another, and you're the pursuer pursuing. You're not pursuing with a leg up. You're not pursuing as one who's figured it out. You're pursuing because he came after you once. You're pursuing with gut-wrenching agony, knowing that Jesus plucked you out of darkness once. How could I not? How could I not pursue? There is no judgmental tone in that. There's much gratitude and humility. And you know the humility it takes when you've been confronted to listen to somebody that you don't like what they're saying. It takes just as much humility to deal that message gracefully and life-giving. It needs humility on both sides to give and receive, equally in need of the gospel. And then go and be reconciled. And we'll talk about this at length next week, so I'm not gonna go into depth. But with that, Ken Sandy has what he calls the seven A's of confession. And this is along the lines of getting the log out of your own eye and owning sin as it's brought before you. To be childlike is to walk in this. Address everyone involved. Avoid if, but, and maybe. So if somebody brings to you an offense or brings to you a concern or some sort of sin, the call is to, to receive that, take it to the Lord, and own what the Lord would have you own. Here's a non-apology or a non-repentant response. When my wife brings something to me and I say, well, yeah, I can see that, but that is a non-ownership response. That's a justifying clause giving credibility to my response. Yeah, I see that you don't like it, but I'm justified in doing it. There is no ownership there, which means there is no repentance there, which means no change will happen as a result. Admit specifically. So this is something we work on with our kids. Um, uh, an example that I would use is if we were having uh, coffee together and I accidentally spilled my hot coffee on you and it got all over you and burned you, it, but it was an accident, I would apologize because it wasn't a sin against you. I wasn't trying to purposely sin against you. So I would apologize, say, I'm, please, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I apologize for spilling my coffee on you. But if I take my coffee and I throw it in your face, that needs forgiveness, which means I need to acknowledge specifically my sin of wrath against you and repent and ask your forgiveness. Do you see the difference? And can I, can I just say that there's, there's a way as the body of Christ that we rarely even have to engage in this, that this isn't normative. As we walk faithfully in Christ together, we're not doing Matthew 18 every other conversation because love covers a multitude of sins. Most of these little disagreements, you end up overlooking anyway because you realize it's a preference thing. I don't like that you wore orange today. It hurts my retinas. And so I'm not going to take it personal and I'm not going to confront you in love. There's no sin. Overlook it. Grace covers a multitude of sins. Overlook the sin. But if it becomes a glaring issue that's driving a wedge in the relationship, that's creating divisiveness in and amongst the community of saints, it's a revealer of deeper heart issues with the Lord vertically. It needs loving pursuit. Has to. Acknowledge the hurt. This is huge. As ministers of the gospel, if you've hurt someone, acknowledge the, the hurt. Accept the consequences, whatever they may be. You see this with the prodigal son. He comes to his senses in the pig pen and he's willing to accept whatever consequences the father would bring over him because he's truly broken. It's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Alter your behavior and ask for forgiveness. Let me tell you a story. This happened, this happened to me the last couple weeks. And I asked permission to share this story uh, from the woman 
that this happened with. Um, Pastor Kai and I kind of use this analogy, um, and he probably came up with it, but I like to take credit for it. Um, it's a good analogy. Um, in, in pastoral care, a lot of times you're trying to walk with people who are really banged up. And it's like, sometimes it's like arriving on the scene of a five-car pileup. You don't really know where to start. There's kind of limbs and body parts everywhere. And you just kind of grab, start, just pick one and grab and start pulling out. Well, in that process of care, you're, we describe it like a scalpel, like you're doing surgery. And, and you've got to cut something out so that healing can happen in the body. And sometimes you fumble with the scalpel and cut a bit too far and it causes some pain. This happens to me consistently. It's one of the most sanctifying things in my job when I'm trying to lovingly exhort someone to biblical truth and I say something that ends up hurting them that's not meant to hurt them. This happened a couple weeks ago with a woman from our church setting in a counseling session with her advocate, and, and the Lord's really doing a phenomenal work in her heart, doing a phenomenal work in her marriage, but there's this one issue where she's, she's stuck. She's not stuck in defiant. She's moving forward, but it's slow steps, and we're dealing with that issue. We're pressing into it. We're praying about it. We're using God's word to press in, and I use an analogy to bring the point home with her, and everything seemed good and fine. We left the session. We're all excited. Praise the Lord. Felt the spirit move. Well, that last analogy just unsettled her and bothered her. And, and, and with the hurt that she's experienced, that the Lord's still healing, it began to sour her. And the Lord began to speak to her heart. Talk to your brother. Me. Talk to your brother. Talk to your brother. So she boldly and lovingly and humbly begins to pray for several days about should I say something to Pastor Lee? Should I say something to Pastor Lee? Which, let's be honest, is intimidating. It's intimidating to come to a pastor, especially with the warnings of scripture when it says confronting a pastor, you need several witnesses. She came to me, not with a confrontation, but something that she shared to hurt me. And she sends me this email. And as I'm reading the email, I could feel my defenses go up. And at the same time, I could feel the hand of the Lord push them down. And as I read it, I could hear her heart. I could hear her grace. I could hear her humility. And I could see why it hurt her. But I could also see the misunderstanding she had. And the Lord gave me just the grace I needed to respond in love. It gave me a chance to acknowledge her hurt. It gave me a chance to clear up any confusion. And we have peace as a brother and sister right now. This is Matthew 18. This should be normative in the body of Christ that we walk in such grace because of the childlike attitude that's afforded to us through Christ Jesus. When a rebuke or a correction comes our way, even if it stings, the spirit of God takes over and we know truth, we know what to walk in and we respond in truth and walk towards healing, even if that healing takes time as we walk those things out. It keeps going, verse 17. Uh, verse 16, excuse me. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. This is, um, this is where the stakes go up a bit. But it's an equally redemptive pursuit. It's an equally humble, childlike pursuit. Uh, it's equally hearts that are burdened for this heart who's walking in some sort of blind spot or some sort of sin, and it pursues out of that. It's also establishing an accountability for the offender and the offended that if it goes to the church, that there's, that there's good accountability and witness to raise it to that level. It's loving, it's humble. The pursuit of reconciliation and redemption is still the goal. 
So this is the part where a lot of times the critique I hear on these verses is, that's so judgmental. That's so non-loving. That's so uncaring. So um, let me use an example from my world. I was trained as a, I've got my master's of arts in marriage and family counseling. I have some addictions training. I've, I've done the gambit when it comes to psychology and psychotherapy. 15, 20 years ago, addictions treatment centers would have, uh, would have approached addiction with this mantra. The, the addict needs to hit rock bottom, okay? So the addict who struggles with whatever it is, they need to come to a place of such desperation. And this is secular theory, by the way. This is non-godly, this isn't godly counsel. This is just how addiction uh, rehab centers would approach it. The addict needs to hit rock bottom. In the last 15 years, there's been a massive change. You ever seen the show Intervention? I was watching that uh, several weeks ago. Heartbreaking story of this young lady who was addicted to all kinds of um, painkillers. Um, and she, was, she had gotten to the point where she wasn't just taking the painkiller orally. She was crushing them up and shooting them up. Or she would find ways to inhale them. She, she was prostituting herself to make money so that she could continue to fund her habits. She was living with her grandfather who was a disabled veteran and using his money to buy her, her drugs. The family um, who are not, from, from, from all accounts and watching the story, I do not think they're Christ followers, especially based off some of the things they were saying. They're seeing their daughter. They're seeing their granddaughter. They're seeing their sister. They're seeing their niece dissolve before their very eyes to the point where her sin is beginning to affect those around them, mainly the grandfather. He's pleaded with her to stop, but he's also enabling her. He's pleaded with her. Individuals have pleaded with her and they show this big culmination with this intervention where this young lady gets duped into going into this room where all of her relatives are waiting. And through tears, they pleaded with her. Through tears, the world has figured this out, guys. Do you know what that is? That's Matthew 18. They pleaded with her to go a different direction. They pleaded with her to trust him and to go towards healing. This is God's redemptive purpose for the body. Lord knows we're gonna have blind spots. Lord knows I'm gonna stop listening to him at times and I need a brother to set me straight. It's loving, it's not judgmental. It's Lord's kindness that leads to repentance. It's his compassion and mercy that leads to repentance. And then it goes on, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what that means um, to be brought before the church is the plurality of elders, the plurality of pastors. This is where this text has been limited to just church discipline. This is the church discipline aspect of that correction. But even in the midst of this, it's still a redemptive pursuit. It's still with a plea. It's an appeal. Like it's one last chance to listen to truth and not truth and reason that comes from me. Truth and reason that God's established for all of us. It's one more appeal, it's one more plea, and if they don't listen, it says, consider them a Gentile and tax collector. So here's what that means. It doesn't mean that we deal with them rudely. 
It doesn't mean that we have nothing to do with them in the sense that we eradicate them, that we treat them rudely. We don't want anything to do with them. What that means is Gentiles and tax collectors don't know Jesus. They need to repent. So we treat them with that grace as ones who need to repent, come to their end, come under the lordship of Christ, which leads to childlikeness, which leads to salvation in the kingdom of heaven. They sin and go on sinning. They need Christ. They need to repent. This is where it leads us to childlikeness. And then in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That goes back to what I just said, that, that where, where two or three are gathered and agree, they're agreeing on something that God has already said. So if somebody brings something against me that's contrary to what God says, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about man's ideas. We're not talking about man's goofy religious rules that get mixed into God's word and telling people to submit. That's, yeah, that's actually called a cult. It's what God says. What God says, and we're only pressing the brother or sister with something that God's already said, and that's where the agreement is with us and with God. God said this, we're trying to walk this together. Please come under this. Please come under what the Lord says here. Their issue's not with me at that point. Their issue's with the Lord. They need to be dealt with with the Lord. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So I'll close with this story. Um, several years ago, probably se- uh, several, it was probably seven or eight years ago, um, I was a young pastor and there was, our church was growing. We were seeing a lot of amazing things happen. Um, a lot of brokenness coming into the sin, uh, into the church, but a lot of healing happening in light of that. There was this young man, his name was Stephen. Stephen struggled with some pretty significant sexual sins. He struggled in the light. Uh, the, the young men in his small group knew about his struggle. He was, he, he was loved there. He was accepted there. They were walking towards Christ together. Well, Stephen went off the grid for a while. And, 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 and the brothers in the group began to be concerned because they would reach out to him and didn't hear anything. And so they were wondering, I, I wonder what's going on with Stephen. We haven't heard from Stephen. Well, Stephen was, was, had fallen into some seriously dark sin. So one of the brothers like showed up his house, literally just showed up and found him and said, hey, I'm taking you to coffee. They went to coffee, they sit down and his brother just, he's just finding out, Stephen, what's going on? Where have you been? We've been praying for you. We miss you. What's going on in your life? We don't know. And at this point, they don't know anything going on. And Stephen's becoming hardened. Stephen begins to share, well, I've fallen into this sin and you know what? I've fought so hard to fight against it, but, but it's still a part of me. I'm still tempted by it. And you know what? Like, I think it's what I'm gonna pursue. And this brother, he's provoked with grace, provoked with love, says, no, Stephen, let's get help. Let's, let's walk towards Christ in this. Don't give in to it. Stephen says, you can't tell me what to do. Those were his words. So the brother goes to talk to the small group and several brothers go and they have a similar intervention and they sit with him and they plead with Stephen. They plead with him. Stephen, with a more hardened response, says, You can't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want. I'll do what makes me feel best. So it came to me and me and several pastors and elders weighed through the situation as we gathered the information. We sat with Stephen, with his brothers. (laughs) And we pleaded again. 
We pleaded with him. His heart was so hard. And then he sarcastically said, I guess I'll just have to hit rock bottom. And he walked out and I said, Stephen, wait, bro, wait. The elders have said, because of the nature of your divisiveness and the dangerousness of your tendency to draw others into your sin, you're not welcome at this church anymore. But when you're ready to repent, please come back. It's one of the last times I thought I would see Stephen. About seven months later, I get a call and it's Stephen. This is one of those moments where you're like, I don't know if I should go to coffee with this guy because maybe I should take a gun with me, right? And concealed to carry in Texas becomes pretty handy in one of these types of meetings, right? I never had a concealed to carry, just so you know. So I go and I sit down. <laughs> he couldn't even get the words out. He just began to weep. He said, help me, help me. And he begins to share of the unimaginable depravity that he had been in the last seven months. And it had taken him to a place he never thought he would go. He says, you were right. I need Christ. And can I tell you, we received that brother back. And we began to walk with Stephen. Like when he came back to his small group, they threw a huge party for Stephen. And to this day, Stephen's in that church serving. It's the loving pursuit of the body of Christ that God uses that mirrors the loving pursuit of the shepherd, the father, who comes after the wandering, who comes after the wayward. Why wouldn't we, body of Christ, walk in what he's called us to walk in? Because we've been the one that's wandered at one point or another and he came after us. We've been the one that was blind at one point or another and he used a brother or sister to correct us. Why wouldn't we listen? So my hope in this is that we, as the body of Christ here at Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound, we would walk in this childlike faith, this humble, Christ-dependent obedience. It's not better than, but less than, equally in need of the gospel to transform hearts, and that we would minister and pursue one another in this power of the gospel. Let's pray. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to give you some things to think about. To inherit the kingdom of heaven, we must become childlike. For us to have redemption of sins, Jesus became a lamb. A lamb led to the slaughter. And Jesus simply tells us to become like children, dependent, weak, humbled, recognize need outside of self that finds truth and grace in Christ. If you are a Christ follower in this room, how does your life and heart measure up to Christ's call to be childlike? Can I just tell you right now, the first enemy of childlikeness is pride, self-reliance, independence. Are you pursuing childlikeness? I don't think childlikeness is a one and done forever. I think others will try to lead us away from it. I think the, the, the fall, the, the sin in the world will try to lead us away from it. I think the propensity of our own sin will lead us away from the childlikeness. Where are you today? Is your heart seeking to come in and under Christ? Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where in your life right now are you proud or self-reliant? Confess it to him. Confess it right now.
and in the community of believers. This is supposed to be a redemptive community where anyone can come in with any trial, with any sickness, with any brokenness, Galatians 6.1, and be received with grace and mercy in your own pursuit of Christ and your call in this body of Christ. Have you failed to pursue or engage with the body of Christ? Have you hardened your heart to loving pleas from brothers and sisters calling you into the light? Maybe you're the one who's resisted correction. Where we position ourselves for non-correction, we walk contrary to the kingdom of heaven. Nobody is above correction. We all need the truth of the gospel to penetrate our hearts over and over and over and over again to bring us low, to make us more dependent. Where have you been hardened? Where have you resisted correction? So Father, these these things are hard things because all of us have blind spots in the room and no one in this room likes correction. There's not a person in this room that loves correction and yet you use correction from the body of Christ to bring us back into the fold. You bring correction to humble us and make us more childlike, more Christ-dependent. Might we be a fellowship of believers that walk compassionately and lovingly and grace-filled in this pursuit of one another. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. Would you give us a love for one another that is, that is descendant and transcendent from Christ above that cares about struggles in one another? that pursues one another in those struggles. There's so much in our culture though, Lord. There's so much in our flesh, Lord, that will resist this. It needs to be a supernatural work. So would you do that work amongst us? We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. So I think the charge that I would give you is there's gonna be men and women up here to pray with you. And I don't, I don't know that this needs to be a big altar call as much as just a personal reflection. Like, where have you failed to walk faithfully in loving others, in pursuing, pursuing the brother, pursuing the sister, out of fear of judging them? Like, pray, plead with the Lord, humble your heart so that Christ might use you to pursue the wayward brother, the wandering brother, the wandering sister, the wayward sister. But maybe you're in a place where you're actively right now resisting correction, resisting truth from the Lord. The Lord uses his, his, his children to pursue his children. And maybe you're resisting. Maybe you're hardening your heart. And the more that we do that, the more calloused our heart becomes. And the more calloused our heart becomes, we become less and less childlike. Let's be in the kingdom of heaven together, brothers and sisters. So let's stand. We're gonna worship together. And I invite you to respond in your own heart. And if you need prayer, you can come up.